The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Hey, when I first became a Christian, I didn't know very much. Um, I knew that I was sinful. That was pretty plain to me. Um, I knew that I needed Jesus to forgive my sins, and I trusted in him as my Lord and and my Savior. I professed faith in him, and and I was baptized. But I I didn't really know what it was going to be like to be a Christian. And that actually caused quite a bit of confusion in me. Um, after getting baptized, when I would sin, I would kind of go into this death spiral. You ever go into the death spiral? And in the death spiral, I would begin to ask myself, am I even actually a Christian at all? <laughs> I would begin to ask myself, am I, am I just a, a phony? Like when I was baptized, did that take? You know, did it stick? Um, I would be filled with what I thought was a lot of condemnation. From where I stand today, I would say that I didn't have a good practical theology of justification and sanctification. I'd never actually even heard those words before at that point in my walk with Jesus. And I've said before that Romans 8.1 was, was the turning point where, where Paul writes that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I can still remember the morning um, I can still remember where I was driving on I-370, uh, heading to work in St. Louis. I can still remember the, the sermon and, and the preacher that I was listening to in my truck on the way there. I can, I can hear him emphasize the word now. <laughs> and I can still remember the feeling. I, I can still remember the tears of joy and, and the, the weight that seemed to sort of lift off of me. I can still remember when the penny dropped. And I realized that all that time, (laughs) ever since I had turned and trusted in Jesus, ever since I had turned and trusted in him, that I had been justified by grace through faith in Jesus. And now, as one who had been justified, counted right with God, I was now being sanctified, growing more and more into Christ's likeness, along with all of its ups and all of its downs, all of its forward steps and, and some backwards ones. But, but when I heard Romans 8.1, it all came together and I understood, I understood the relationship between my justification and my sanctification. And it really sunk home. There's no condemnation for me now. Romans 8 is extremely special to me. Okay, but as I've reflected on that the last few weeks, it dawned on me that the penny never would have dropped in Romans 8.1 if it wasn't for Romans 7. See, up until now, with, with some exceptions, okay, but largely up until now, in his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul has been concerned with telling us how it is that you came to be justified. Now, though, as we close out chapter 7, and actually this is very much what chapter 8 is about, Now he's telling us what it's like to live as one who has been justified. And the answer is that it's a little bit complicated, (laughs) all right? Um, Maybe you've sensed that in yourself, you know? Maybe maybe you've sensed that even in reading Romans up to this point. You've sensed there's a complex relationship here for the believer with the law and sin and the Holy Spirit and obedience and the flesh and all these things, right? Right? 
On the one hand, Paul has said things to us like, you are justified by grace. (laughs) That God justifies the ungodly. That Christ's righteousness has been counted as yours if you trust in him, if you've turned to him, right? It's, It's already counted as yours. That as one who has been justified by faith, you have peace with God, you have access to God, you, have, you can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, that while you were still weak, that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you, and that you've been justified by his blood, saved from the wrath of God, and reconciled to God. How did you come into all of that? How were you justified? By grace, through faith, not by your works, that's how. And because of that, it's true of you that you were once a slave to sin. But now, you've died to sin. Paul has said, your old self was crucified. You're no longer enslaved to sin. You've been set free from sin. He's also told us, you've died to the law. The rules, the commands, you've been released from the law. You're no longer under the law. You're now under grace. All that is true of you if you're truly a Christian. And it's untrue of you if you're not. In fact, the opposite of all these powerful, glorious truths are true of you if you're not. But if you are, it's all true. And because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross... It's never going to be untrue. Dead to sin. No longer enslaved. Set free on the one hand. Now, there's another hand, isn't there? So on the one hand, we're we're free from, from sin. On the other hand, though, Paul has also said things like, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Present your members instead as slaves to righteousness. You're a slave to God now. And he'll say in Romans 8, don't live according to the flesh anymore. If you do that, you'll die. Instead, put to death the deeds of the body. And so on the one hand, right, you've been set free from sin. And on the other hand, you're still fighting it. This is the complexity that I didn't understand when I first became a Christian. On the one hand, you've been set free from the law. And on the other hand, the righteous requirements of the law are to be fulfilled through you, in you. Be holy, because he's holy. And it's all part what it's like to live as one who has been justified. It's all a part of what it's like to live with the gospel in you. And so I want us to see five things today that are true of you when the gospel is in you. All right, five things that will help you know what it's like to live as one who has been justified. The first thing that is true is that the gospel, it, it changes us at the level of our wants. At the level of our wants. This is extremely important, all right? And every parent knows how important this is. Um, every, every parent, no matter how old or young the child, longs for the, the child to obey, right? And to, to make good decisions for their life, not just because you said so, not just externally keeping up the appearances, not just out of peer pressure or for a reward, right? Every parent of at least a three-year-old, let alone a 13-year-old, will tell you, you can't change what a child wants. But that's what you want. You want them to obey because they want to obey. 
you want them to obey because they actually want to. Only God can do that. That's why perfect parenting is an absolute impossible task, right? Only God can change the heart. Only God can change our wants. And he does. Part of what Paul, part of what Paul's telling us that it's like to live as one who is justified is to have your wants changed. Look at Romans 7, verse 22. What does Paul say? He says, I delight in the law in my inner being. I delight in the law in my inner being. Someone who isn't truly a Christian doesn't talk that way. All right? Um, You might agree with the law. You might be able to see the the uh, the benefit um, of the law being observed in the world, you know, if everyone lived that way, but only a Christian can say it and mean it. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. The, tr- the Christian is one who says with Paul that the law, it's spiritual. In, in other words, it comes from God, it's good, and I delight in it. The commands, the rules. The NASB translation renders this verse this way. It says, I joyfully agree with the law of God. (laughs) It's like you read the the commands of God in the pages of Scripture, right? In his word, and you're happy about them. (laughs) You're, You're joyful about them. You delight in them in your innermost being. You joyfully want to joyfully obey them. In fact, seven times in our passage, Paul uses want language here. Have you noticed that? Look at verse 15. He says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. Skip down to verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, For I have the desire, and the word desire there in the ESV is actually the same word in the Greek translated want in other places. I have the the want to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, Evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. (laughs) Now, there's an inner struggle that's going on here, right? And we'll address that struggle in a moment. But before we do, um, we want to first look closely at what Paul wants. And I actually like how the, I don't usually like the New Living Translation. It's kind of a paraphrase thing. But I actually like how the New Living Translation, translation paraphrases verses 18 and 19 for us is a helpful paraphrase here it renders uh, verses 18 and 19 this way i want to do what is right but i can't i want to do what is good but i don't i don't want to do what is wrong but i do it anyway Again, the struggle is here, but look at the first part of these sentences. Paul wants to do what is right. He wants to do what is good. He doesn't want to do what's not good, what's wrong. Why does he talk this way? Because he delights in the law of God in his inner being. He joyfully agrees with it. 
In verse 16, he says, even if I do the opposite of what I want, my, this good want that's in me, even if I do the opposite of that, remember, he wants to do it. He wants to do what's right and good. But even if I do the opposite of that, Paul says in verse 16, I'm not excusing it as okay. In fact, I agree with God that what I'm doing is wrong. And what his law says is good. And I delight in his law, in my inner being. The, the gospel, see, has affected Paul at the level of his wants. This happens to you when you become a Christian. It happens at conversion. It's the new heart that the new covenant promises, promise back in the Old Testament. A new heart and a new spirit, the, the Holy Spirit whom God puts in you when you believe that the same spirit who causes you to walk in God's statutes and to be careful to obey his rules. It's the same spirit in you that causes you to delight in the law of God. To joyfully want to keep his commandments. To joyfully want to walk in his ways. To joyfully want to obey. The gospel, see, it changes you at the level of your wants. This is really important to understand as we make sense of what it's like to live as one who has been justified. As one who has been justified, your wants have been changed. You're going to need to know that. You're going to need to understand that. In fact, you're going to need to examine that when sin pops up in your life. When you're torn, like Paul here, when you sense yourself fighting with yourself, within yourself, the question that you need to ask yourself is, what do I most want? Right now, in the moment of temptation, you might be thinking, I really want to give in to this temptation. <laughs> to gossip, to, to covet, to lust, to sin, whatever it is, to sin in whatever way, but deep down, deeper down, ask yourself, what do I most want? Hmm? The Christian is one who deepest down wants to obey God. The Christian is one who delights in the law of God in your innermost being such that even in the moment of temptation when your self feels divided, your true self wants to obey, delights in obeying even. You want to do what is right. You want to do what is good. You don't want to do what's wrong. You become, to use Paul's language from Romans six seventeen, obedient from the heart. The gospel changes us at the level of our wants. And yet, second thing, indwelling sin is still present in our life. Paul calls it the flesh in verse 14. He says, the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh. Or verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Flesh here is a shorthand way of referring to indwelling sin in our life as a believer. The sin that remains. We, so we've been set free from sin, and yet we're still dealing with it, aren't we? Anybody in here perfect? <laughs> Absolutely not. And if you are, you're in the wrong church, okay? We, like, we, don't, we don't preach that around here, none of that. Indwelling sin, we might say, explains the gap between our justification and our glorification. 
and therefore the importance of sanctification in our life. As Christians, we've been counted as righteous before God because of Jesus. That's justification. It happens once and forever for us, right, when we trust in him. One day, when Jesus returns, we will be perfected. That's glorification. When the imperfect takes on the perfect, we'll we'll be perfect, but we're not there yet. In between our justification and our glorification, we're being sanctified. We're growing in Christ's likeness. We're making progress. Progress against what? Against indwelling sin in our life. That's what? Progress against our flesh. The part of us that remains in opposition to God. This indwelling sin is also what explains the other half of the statements that we were looking at earlier in that New Living Translation. When Paul says, I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. The reason he can't, the reason he doesn't, the reason he does it anyway, even when he doesn't want to, is because of his flesh. Because of indwelling sin in him. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing, he says in verse 19. He calls it evil, see? It's as if I'm still sold under sin somehow, he says in verse 14. And I hate it, verse 15. This is indwelling sin at work in me, he says, in fact, in verse 17. It's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me doing the things I hate, not doing the things I love. It's evil, he says. In verse 20, now if I do what I do not want, remember what he wants? What he wants most, deepest down, is to obey the law of God. But if I do what I do not want, he says, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Indwelling sin, see? It's still present in the believer. And you need to know this. Part of what it's like to live as one who has been justified is to deal with the ongoing reality of the presence of indwelling sin. I like to illustrate indwelling sin this way. Imagine yourself sitting down at a, at a writing desk, all right? You're at the writing desk, um, and you've got a blank piece of paper. Paper is things people used to write on before computers, okay? And a pen is writing the instrument, okay? So you're sitting down at this desk, and and, and you're going to write out on this piece of paper. On this paper, with your pen, you start to write out all the ways that you want to live. All the ways that you want to obey. Scripting out how you want to love God and walk closely with Jesus each day and read his word and spend time in prayer and not covet and to trust in him and to love others around you and all of that, right? But as you sit down to write this all out, indwelling sin crouches at your elbow. And not every time, but far more times than you'd like. When you're about to finish a word, every time you're about to finish a, a sentence, your elbow gets bumped. It goes across the page and you end up with this squiggly line of of, of messes. Your perfect plan is reduced to some somewhat difficult to decipher scribbles. That's a metaphor of the Christian life within dwelling sin. 
It's part of what it's like to live as one who has been justified. Indwelling sin remains. And every true Christian can attest to this, even if you haven't had the right theological vocabulary to describe it. And chances are, if, if you haven't had the right theological vocabulary to describe it, you've thought, you've asked, like I did when I first became a Christian, when you've sinned, you've wrestled with, am I really even a Christian at all? I love how C.S. Lewis talks about this, uh, this reality. He talks about it in Mere Christianity. He writes, no man knows how bad he is until he's tried very hard to be good. That explains a lot, doesn't it? It's only when you really set out to obey, really set out to put your deepest wants into action, that you really find just how deep indwelling sin goes. Now, because the gospel changes us at the level of our wants, and because indwelling sin is still present, there's a war going on, isn't there? In fact, that war that you feel going on inside of you is actually indicative of the fact that you've been justified to begin with. For the unbeliever, it doesn't feel like a war. There is no war for the unbeliever. Sin is present, but because of the unbeliever's wants that, that haven't been, the unbeliever's wants haven't been changed, so there's no war. Sin is an unchecked oppressor in the life of an unbeliever, deceiving, destroying, making war against no opposition. It's only actually because you've been justified, only actually because you've been given a new heart, new wants, that you sense a war going on inside of you. Look at verse 21 in in the text. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now, Paul's use of the law here gets a little confusing. The word the law in, this, in these three verses gets a little confusing. Let me try to clear it up for you. In verse 22, he's referring to God's law, okay, the commandments, the, the rules for righteous living. It's the same, I think, down in verse 23 when he refers to the law of my mind. In these places, he's referring to God's law, which he told us last week is holy and righteous and good. In verse 21, then, he's using the word law to denote something more like a principle, It's like him saying, through self-examination, I've discovered this general principle that the more I try to do good, the more evil comes at me. It's like what Lewis said. The more my flesh raises up within me. But then at the end of verse 23, and actually again further down in verse 25, he uses the, the word law to denote more of a force or a power. It's like he's saying, in in my deepest heart, in my innermost being, including my mind, I delight in God's law. His law is the main power now in my heart and in my mind. But there's another power within me, the power of sin. Recall Paul has been careful throughout Romans to not just call our misdeeds sin, but to refer to sin also as a power. 
something that exercises dominion and rule, remember? And this power, he says, it's, it's not the ruling influence in my life anymore. It's not controlling my deepest wants, but it's still within me causing trouble and making war against my deepest wants. When the gospel is in you, it's normal to sense a war going on inside of you. It's normal. In fact, the fact that there's a war going on inside of you is actually indicative of the truth that the gospel is indeed in you. What's it like to live as one who has been justified? It's like living in a war. And therefore, we fight. We fight. We, we don't just rest. The, the Christian life is one of simultaneous resting and fighting. Resting in our justification and fighting from our justification against indwelling sin because there's a war going on. And you might be asking, where's, where's that in, in Romans? So where's that at in, in this text? Well, it's not explicit in this text, but it's here in the wider context, and it needs to be addressed here. Romans 7 is not the only perspective a believer has on him or herself. It's not a sum total of what it's like to live as one who has been justified. It's one part, and it's essential. It's essential to know that our wants have been changed. It's essential to understand indwelling sin and that there's a war going on. But we also must understand that we're to fight. Again, it's not in this particular passage, but it's in the text right before, in the text right after. Chapter 6, verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't do that, Paul says. Chapter 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Then we're fighting words. Or Colossians 3, verse 5. To the church in Colossae, Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. The church in Colossae needed to hear this from the Apostle Paul. There were still things in their life that they needed to fight against and put to death. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, church. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, he writes. Put those things to death. We see the same fighting words in a place like Galatians 5, where Paul also commands Christians, walk by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you what? Want to do. <laughs> Paul here is again telling us about the war that's going on inside of us. The war between the Holy Spirit and our flesh. And because there's a war going on, he says, walk by the Spirit and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Listen, just because you're free doesn't mean you don't have to fight. And I realize there's some danger in using this next illustration because something drastically could have happened between 
I don't know, when I stop paying attention to the news and right now. Um, but think about the, the war in Ukraine right now. When Russia first invaded, I think we'd all probably admit, Russia, it seemed to be much, a much stronger power, didn't it? And I don't know about you, but one of the most striking things for me in the early days of, of, of kind of paying attention a little bit of that on, on the news was seeing Ukrainians interviewed on TV and saying, we're not going anywhere. This is our country, and we will fight till death. You remember hearing that? In a spiritual sense, that's a little bit of what it's like to live as one who's been justified. There's a war going on, and it's going to be going on until you die, or until Jesus returns. Your job, in the midst of that, is to fight all the way till death. And what would happen in those early days and weeks if the Ukrainians wouldn't have fought? Russia would have just blown in and seized control of everything. But because they fought, see, they've been able to hold their ground to a certain extent. John Owen, in the very best book I've ever read on indwelling sin, it's called Indwelling Sin in Believers. He said, giving way to the law of indwelling sin gives strength to it. Leaving it alone lets it grow. Not to conquer it is to be conquered by it. That drives it home, doesn't it? Leaving it alone lets it grow. In another excellent work of his titled The Mortification of Sin, mortify uh, means to put to death, right? So we might title this the, the Killing of Sin is how we might title this book nowadays. Listen to Owen when he says this. He says the, the choicest believers, that's got to be us, right? I mean, it's, it's got to be, it's got to be. The, the choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. You're being dead with Christ virtually. You're being quickened with him. Will not excuse you from this work. Indwelling sin always abides while we're in this world and therefore it is always to be mortified. <laughs> What's it like to live as one who has been justified? It's like living in a war zone and you gotta fight. Now when you read this section of Romans 7 carefully, you also observe something else, don't you? And the Ukrainian illustration is Maybe still a little bit helpful here too. When, when you read Romans 7, you get a sense, don't you, that Paul, when he describes his own experience, which is paradigmatic of the Christian experience, you get a sense that he's up against an overmatched opponent. Things, there, there's things I want to do, Paul says. My wants have been changed, but I can't do them. I don't. There's things I, I don't want to do, again, the, with the, the changed ones, but I do them. Verse 18, I have the desire, the want to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And then if we look closely at verse 17 and verse 20, we read, so now it is no longer I who do it, 
but sin that dwells within me. And verse 20, now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Listen, this is not Paul denying responsibility. This is Paul confessing inability. It's him agreeing on my own, left to myself, I'm extremely overmatched. Maybe you felt that way in your Christian life before. Overmatched. Sin has seemed so powerful. You want to stop, but you can't. You, you, you want to stop being jealous. You, you, you want to stop losing your temper. You, you want to stop lust, but, but you can't. You really want to do that, that good thing, and it, but it, it, it always, you, you always seem to be coming up short. You, you, you really want to you know, be in the Word and pray and love your neighbors and share the gospel and all these good things, but you're, you're always coming up short. Paul can empathize with that. The Bible is saying to you this morning, it's not weird to feel that way as a Christian. It's not wrong to sense your inability to overcome sin on your own in your life. In fact, Paul will go so far in this passage to even cry out, in the midst of the war, in the midst of the fighting, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me? Who's going to save me from this body of death? That's not Paul signifying God's judgment on him in a condemning way. It's him signifying the misery that he feels in the midst of the fight. I'm incapable, he says. My own efforts, they're not, they're not getting the job done. The gospel's changed my wants. I know indwelling sin is still present. There's a war going on, and I'm fighting, and I'm fighting, and I'm fighting, but I'm overmatched, see? I've tried everything. Nothing seems to help in the way that I want it to. I'm at the end of my rope, I'm wretched. Is there anyone who can help? Who do I turn to? Like who will, who will deliver me? Who? Verse 25. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God, thanks be to God, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's who. This is absolutely crucial to understanding what it's like to live as one who has been justified. There's a war going on. You must fight, and yet Jesus wins. Jesus wins. How exactly? Well, from one perspective, <laughs> he wins when he returns. It makes all things new. He'll finally and fully eradicate sin from the world, including all remaining indwelling sin in his people, in us. The war will be over. No more fighting. Like his holy shalom will cover the earth and it will fully infiltrate you. It will fill you. You and I, as those who belong to him, will be glorified, perfected, 
the gap between our justification and our glorification will be closed. (laughs) We will be fully and finally sanctified, set apart, holy, in full Christ-likeness to glorify God and sing his praise and enjoy his presence on and on and on into eternity. That's going to be nice. (laughs) But also, Jesus has already won. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Look at that again. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God did it. How? By sending his own Son. Jesus Christ our Lord, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is what Romans 8 is all about, church. Though we're at war, though we fight, Paul's going to tell us in Romans 8, verse 37, we are already more than conquerors. Thanks be to God, he says in 2 Corinthians 2, 14, who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession. We're already already marching. Victoriously. How can he say these things? Well, because Jesus did not only die for your sin, but he also rose and ascended and sent his Holy Spirit to live in everyone who belongs to him. Right here, right now, if you belong to Jesus, the Holy Spirit is in you. Which means, of course, it means, of course, you're overmatched. Of course you're overmatched against the power of sin, but you're not fighting it alone. You have the Holy Spirit of God in you, and now the task becomes to live not only as one who has been justified, but also to live as one who has the Holy Spirit of God in them. To walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. To live according to the Spirit and set your mind upon the things of the Spirit. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he's going to say in Romans 8.11. And so now, by the Spirit, you can put to death the deeds of the body. The Spirit will help you in your weakness, interceding even for you with groans too deep for words. You know, Paul mentions the Spirit 21 times in Romans chapter 8. You know how many times he's mentioned it so far in Romans 7? Just once. Just once. He's been focused largely on how you came to be justified. But now we're beginning to see in our text today and on into chapter 8 what it's like to live as one who's been justified. Part of what it's like to live as one who has been justified is to learn how to walk by the Spirit. And along those lines, let me close with just something I found to be super helpful in my own life, real practical, uh, in my own wars and in my own uh, fight against sin by the power of the Spirit in my life. And I I like it uh, because, well, 
It's nifty. Yeah? Real nifty. This is a really sad attempt at an acronym, by the way. But the N, the N, name it. Name it. When temptation comes my way, right, when my flesh rises up, when I'm tempted to do something that I don't want to, or when I'm struggling to do something that I want to, I name it. Name the sin. Name the desire of my flesh, whatever it is. God, I'm, I'm tempted right now to, to covet. I'm tempted right now. Um, I might not even recognize it as coveting, but I'm tempted to wallow in self-pity, which is another form of coveting. It's a desire of my flesh. Name it. Like Neo in the Matrix, right? You're trying to like slow down and see it for what it is and name it, you know? Matrix. 50-year-old movie. Name it. That's the end. It's nifty. Name it. Then the I. This is why it's a horrible acronym. Nikipata didn't work very well, so we had to move it over. <laughs> Confess my inability. Name the desire of the flesh, and then confess my inability. Lord, left to myself, I'm just going to give in to this. I don't have what it takes on my own to beat this thing. I'm weak, I'm overmatched. Confess your inability. P, preach truth to yourself. Preach that there's a war going on in me. Preach to yourself that obeying is is better. Preach to yourself what it is that you most want. It can be a line from Scripture. It could be Romans 7.22, I delight in the law of God in my innermost being. It could be another line of scripture, who, who have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I want besides you. Preach that obedience is better, that Christ is my satisfaction, that he's not holding out on me. I can trust him. Preach your true, new covenant heart truth to yourself, what you most want. H, broken acronym again. Cry out for help. N-C-P-C-T. Yeah, it just wasn't going to work. So cry out for help. After we, after we confess our inability, after we preach the truth to ourselves, we cry out to help. Wretched man that I am, Paul says, who's going to deliver me? Like I, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where's my help going to come from? It's not going to come from in me, not in my own flesh. I need help from the Spirit of God. Who's going to deliver me? Jesus, ultimately, yes, in the end, when he comes and finally sets me free from this mess. But in the right here and right now, his Holy Spirit lives within me. And so we can pray, Spirit of God, help me right here, right now, in this moment, to overcome. Help me to obey. Help me to believe that God's way is better. Help me to be satisfied in you. Or just help. Help! And when he does, help. Thank him. 
Give thanks to God. For he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Thank you, Lord, for loving me. Thank you, Lord, for showing me your ways. For giving me a new heart, changing me at the level of my wants. Thank you for sending your son and giving me your spirit and helping me to walk by your Holy Spirit. Now, listen, that's, that's nifty, right? And it's pretty practical. It's something that you can do. And I found it to be pretty helpful. Not 100% of the time. Maybe 70% of the time, maybe more as time goes on. Sometimes I don't pick up this nifty weapon. Sometimes I try things on my own and lose. Sometimes it seems that the nifty weapon doesn't work. That's important to realize too. Even with the 21 references to the Spirit in Romans chapter 8, there's no suggestion that as we, as believers, depend upon and are strengthened by and walk with the Spirit, that the experience described in Romans 7 is somehow left behind. Which means we're never going to stop needing Jesus. And when he returns, we're going to be really glad to see him. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.